Blog Talk Radio. We are the heirs of that first revolution. Will a strong and united America still be a force for freedom and prosperity around the world? America has created the longest peacetime economic expansion in our history. We are the heirs of that first revolution. Good common sense and sound judgment of the American people and their essential love of justice. Zubine for March 13, 2022. I'm your host, David McLaughlin. Joining me as always, welcome Catherine Smith. Greetings from Atlanta. And welcome Tim Shifley. Good evening, sir. All right, good to have y'all both on. I'm excited tonight about our guest, uh, Ron Hetrick, who is a labor economist with M, um, with uh, Burning Glass, MCI, uh, burning MSMI Burning Glass, they, they kind of merged, and they did a report called the Demographic Drought. And we're going to talk to uh, Ron about, you know, what that report said about the demographic drought. It's just fascinating about really our population and what it means for really a lot of areas, but in particular our labor force. And so he'll be coming on in about 20 minutes, and we'll uh, discuss that with Ron. Until then. Um, and incidentally, he is he does live in Florida. Uh, we're going to discuss Florida ahead of that, and something we've been wanting to talk about for a few weeks, but but other issues have gotten in front of it. But it's a bill that just has made so much news because it is so controversial. But that's not the only controversial thing Ron DeSantis has done. So we may talk about some more. Although I think he does so much controversial stuff, if I tried to list them all, I'd forget a few things. Um, because he's a magnet for controversy these days. But the first thing we're going to talk about is what's been termed uh, the Don't Say Gay Bill, um, that even though it's gotten really national um, scorn, uh, jeers, if you will, um, opposition, and even within the state as well, it continues to push through. Um, it's really a wide-ranging bill. It's not just, you know, don't say the word gay in school. That's kind of – is a very quick way to say it, but not encompassing what all it does. It affects not only um, people and families that may be um, LGBTQ, but it also affects educators, I think, in a big way as well, um, and probably other areas too. But, uh, Catherine, when you heard about this legislation, what was your thoughts? Well, it's it's horrific. It's um, it's deeply troubling uh, for uh, so many reasons. Um, I can't even begin. Uh, it just makes my blood boil. Um, not discussing things doesn't make them go away. Number one, and uh, these are you know. Part, this is all part of our biology, and it's heartbreaking to just like push it aside and not discuss it in, in school, uh, because often uh, it can't, it isn't discussed at home either, and it just continues the stigma and shame around um, the LGBTQ um, 
kept population. So, uh, and by the way, we have a bill in, in Georgia very similar to it now. So. Yeah, there's a lot of copycat legislation. Um, there's something not exactly like it, but in Texas, and I think it may pop up other places, but um, Florida, they, they, they pushed it quickly. And, and really, it's, it's a very yeah. strange state to push it in Florida because Florida is a pretty um, – I mean, as wild as Florida can be, it's also a very open-minded state, and it also has a very large population um, of gay and lesbian people um, in, in different cities um, that have always had, had large populations. So it seems like a very – even if you are a Republican that wants to get in good with the base, uh, still kind of pushing the envelope um, in, in a very tricky way there politically. Um, Tim, what are some of your thoughts on it? Two words, actually, culture wars. And why are we having culture wars? Why are we having a governor of a state and a state legislature attack, well, not for anything that they've done, but simply for who they are? Well, A, it's an election year. And in Governor DeSantis' case, B, 2024 is a presidential election year. So, you know, he he's wants to limit classroom discussion about sexual orientation, uh, give parents the right to sue on curriculum and call critical race theory, state-sanctioned racism. All, all this stuff ties together. But, you know, the, the LBGTQ uh, community has about 13 million people, and that's a lot of people to be going after in this country. And as you mentioned, there, there are a lot of them uh, in the state of Florida. And, you know, they haven't bothered anybody. They haven't broken any laws. They don't go out knocking over convenience stores. Uh, they go about their lives. Uh, the grown, the, the adults pay their taxes. The kids, you, know, you never hear anything controversial about them or out of them. Uh, but, no, they're attacked because it's politically expedient to do so, and he, he should he should be ashamed, but in his particular case, well, he's, he's just not. He wants to replace Donald Trump and let, let's go at it hardball, and they are a convenient target. Yes, and we're going to get into that political implications of what's motivating Ron DeSantis. Before we get to that, you know what's so – so vexing to me about this, as I heard parts of it, is in one situation, it's like, well, let's not talk about homosexuality in schools. Well, okay. But then there's another component of the bill that says if a teacher or some other school member um, believes or feels or hears or learns that a student um, is um, saying that they're gay, that they are to report it to the parents. So we are talking about it. We are saying it. Um, but the only thing is, is, is this becomes a very, very strange line for educators because, I mean, if someone, a student were to come to a teacher and you know, really open their hearts up, and I'm thinking more of a counselor here, then there's, you, know, you would think there would be some kind of counselor-student privilege unless someone's going to get hurt, although this, this law could supersede that. 
So you would completely you know, disrupt the counselor-student relationship here. But then also if a teacher just sees a student and they thought they overheard something or they think that student is behaving in some way in their mind that they are, you know, possibly gay or lesbian, then the teacher is supposed to suppose that and tell the parents, what if they get it wrong? Or what if the student then, you know, is afraid to tell the parents? What kind of position is this putting educators in? And if you're a, a person looking to maybe teach, you can teach in any of the states, and you know Florida's growing, so it needs more teachers. Do you just want to stay away from Florida classrooms because this is just yet another minefield that you don't want to be involved with? Catherine, thoughts there? Well, I think you make a good point. Um, but the way things are going, I mean, we've got these some crazy laws in Texas now, too. I mean, we're going to make it uh, where teachers don't want to teach anywhere, which considering the last two years, I'm not sure is uh unreasonable you know i think there's probably a trend that way um the i i think that this is there are so many implications of laws like this um like you said the the trust between a teacher and a student which for some students is uh one of their only, um, you know, trusting relationships in their way out of some, you know, terrible family situation or um, their path to higher education. And, you know, there we all hear stories about teachers who have really made a difference in a child's life and to uh, threaten that, um, that potential is really is really troubling, um, and also I'm not sure. I, I mean, I think the political um, gauging of this is not necessarily um, wise. Uh, there, you know, the attitude toward LGBTQ um, population is changing. Because there are a lot of parents who are parents of children who are um, within the LGBTQ community, and those ideas are changing. And I'm not sure this political calculation is so good for Ron DeSantis and the Florida GOP. Hmm. Yeah, let, let, okay, let's go ahead. I can feel y'all want to. Let's move the discussion there. Uh, um, so – there is a calculation for Ron DeSantis, and he has to look at, well, I guess, three pieces to this thing. He has to look at winning the governor's race in Florida, and maybe he's looked at the polls and decides, you know, maybe he can't shoot somebody in the Tampa Bay equivalent of Times Square, but he, he thinks he's got enough of a cushion. He can take some chances here. He's also got to win the general election for president if he were somehow become the nominee in 2024, possibly, I guess, 2028. I mean, who begins to know where the political landscape will be that far away? But um, he'd have to win the general, and both of the, this move does seem problematic for both of those. But to win the 
nomination of the Republican Party, um, that's a different calculation. So, Tim, I've set all this up for you. What do you think is Ron DeSantis's motivation and math going into uh, political moves like he's doing, in particular with this um, controversial bill? Of course he's doing all of this on purpose, picking fights with what he describes as the woke agenda. He wants to replace Trump, and it's working according to the polling. His popularity with Republicans nationally is rising. He is the only possible Republican presidential candidate that has more than a 20% approval rating among likely Republican 2024 primary voters. Uh, on, only Trump is the only other one. He has positioned himself already to replace Trump and to get Trump's voters. That's why he called critical race theory state-sanctioned racism, that's why he is promoting legislation to restrict abortion, like I said, limit classroom discussion about sexual orientation, allow parents to sue schools based on curriculum. Uh, and he even submitted his own redistricting map that was to the right of the legislative map. It actually openly eliminated a majority black voting district. Uh, of course, he, he, he wouldn't even condemn a white nationalist rally down there uh, recently. It was full of Nazis. He, he wouldn't even do that. And he appointed a surgeon general, guys. He fired the one he had because the man was willing to do the COVID restrictions on he appointed this nutkins, this Ladapo guy that was pushing all of these alternative medicines. Uh and 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 he, the the state surgeon general that he appointed is refusing to enforce COVID restrictions during the height of the pandemic. He's doing it, and it costs the lives of no telling how many people. Look how he treated those students the other day. The governor did that video you sent us when he turned around and hollered at them to take your mask off. It's ridiculous. They don't help. Blah blah blah. I mean, of course he's doing all of this. Uh, you know what else he's doing, uh, guys? He's doing a lot of out-of-state appearances now at dinners and fundraisers. Now, why do you reckon he's doing all of that? He's running for president. It's, That's what he's doing. It's yeah. that simple. There we go. <laughs> it's to raise his national profile uh, for the Republican nomination should it come open in 2024. Or possibly further. I mean, that once again, I think planning that far in 2028 is just kind of, kind of beyond um, what a, a most people could see. But now let's get back into Florida because, you know, he probably does start off with the lead in Florida, no doubt. I mean, even the most generous polls to Democrats are still showing it um, with a small DeSantis lead. Um, so – at what point does all of these things begin to add up? And in particular, you know, our country has moved over the past 20 years um, to a more progressive place on, you know, gay rights issues. 
at what point do the voters of Florida just get turned off and maybe some soft DeSantis sport, uh, support just goes away, Catherine? Well, you know, that's the, that's the magic question. Don't we, don't we all wish we knew the answer to that? Um, I, honestly, I don't know. I, I always think it's, you know, this is going to be it, and then it's not. So um, I don't know. I, I think there's, um, you know, there's a lot of families that have LGBTQ family members who may be conservative, but they still love their children and their family members and their cousins and their nephews and nieces and whatever. So uh, maybe th- maybe this will do it. I don't know. I don't know either. Well, we're going to put a pin in this conversation, this conversation about small ideas that, that, that are not focused on the future, and we're going to switch gears on to somebody who's focused way into the future on the big issues that nobody's thinking about, and welcome into the show Mr. Ron Hetrick of MCI Burning Glass. Welcome, Ron. Hello. Uh, nice to be here. Good to have you. Um, well, Ron, uh, I know about you. I've told Catherine and Tim about you, but let our listeners know about yourself and your background. Okay. Well, I, I'm a lifelong labor economist. I know that sounds really exciting to everybody. So I was about eight years at the Bureau of Labor Statistics and then about 20 years with a very, very large staffing company, and now I've been with MZ Burning Glass uh, since the around uh, mid 2020, and my specialty has always been kind of just labor, labor economics, and wrote an article last year, came out around April of last year, called The Demographic Drought, and we just published the follow-up about two weeks ago uh, the, to the demographic drought called Bridging the Labor Force Gap. Well, I would ask you why you wrote it, but that's pretty obvious mm-hmm. with y'all being uh, a labor economist, so tell, tell our listeners just the synopsis, yeah. and I did give them homework. I told them they should find your uh, about roughly 30-minute video on YouTube, but in case they didn't, give them just the, the real uh, short version of what y'all found. Yeah. yeah, I'll give you the very short version, and that is we have a very uh, large boomer population that loved, uh, apparently loved to work, uh, worked really hard, made a lot of money. They're retiring, and then uh, we just do not have the, the population behind them. Uh, even though we may even have people, the biggest problem that we have is, you know, labor force participation has just been going down over the past couple decades. And as the boomers continue to retire, you know, we just don't have a lot of people uh, to replace them in the labor force. Yes, and I, I, I watched it before I booked you, and then I watched it again this weekend, so I'd be ready. And one thing that really struck out uh, stuck out at me in your findings was. It's not an even need of workers. We actually kind of have this perception that the average person is this, um, you know, high school educated, blue collar worker, and yet it's really we have more education in America. We have a lot of those workers, but we don't have as many lower skilled workers. Yes. So I want you to talk about that, but then also how we might create, at least in the near term, more. Um, you know, find more lower skilled workers. Yeah. Well, I'm glad you brought it up because it's actually what I think is the most important part of the entire presentation is that misperception. And uh, something, if you see the video online, something I 
kind of give an example about it. But, you know, for a long time, we've, you know, we've been morphing away. You know, there's this idea of, you know, the, the regular person in America is Joe, Joe Lunchpail, and he, he heads off to the manufacturing plant. You know, the manufacturing is that's only 8% of our employment. We have, you know, the vast majority of our labor force, and this is the part that people have to understand. We're talking about the labor force. We're not talking about the population because people always say, well, only 38% of the population has a college degree. We're not talking about that. We're talking about our labor force. And our labor force is predominantly educated, at least with an associate's degree. So as, you know, we're looking right now, you know, we just, we have six and a half million job openings for an incredibly small population of unemployed people who only have a high school diploma or less. And I mean six and a half million lower skilled job openings. So we're talking about restaurants and retail, manufacturing, construction. But we simply don't have that many of those, those people left anymore. And so talking about what can we do, because that's, I mean, I've been speaking literally every week. I just spoke again on Friday. Now I actually want to give this example because it's pretty incredible. This woman who uh, works for a hospital said that they posted an accounting position. They had 70 applicants. She posted for a maintenance worker and a janitor, and they had two applicants. And she's like, we cannot find anybody anywhere. And I'm hearing that from construction firms and manufacturing. And I think that, you know, the answers are the sum that a lot of people don't necessarily have a really good understanding of. First off, we've had an absolutely enormous plunge in immigration. So uh, almost it's completely disappeared in the past, uh, basically the past two years. A lot of that, you know, obviously COVID-related. But the bigger thing is the U.S. consulates have not been staffed. We're not processing people through. And then the second part of it is um, we have people. You know, we, we, we already talked about 16 to 19-year-olds. You know, we've got 11 million not in the labor force. And we just have to get people off the sidelines because a lot of people who aren't working, we need to get them back into working. Yes. Well, there were some other points you made, particularly about young males, and I may want to get the question, time to ask those kind of questions later. But I want to be fair to my co-hosts, Tim and Catherine, so I'm going to let them ask questions. And if there's a little time at the end before you got to get ready for your game tonight, um, I'm going to uh, ask that. So, uh, Tim, I'll pass it over to you. Yeah. <laughs> uh, good evening, sir. Thank you for being with us. Um, obviously, this was known about baby boomers retiring in large numbers, for a long yeah. time, I'm a baby boomer myself, and am now retired. Why was this not addressed before? Do you think? Yeah, you know, it's funny. I keep getting that's a question I get, and I, I always tell people if I were to come at you and say, you know, I've got headache medicine, and you're going to need it, and you're like, yeah, but I don't feel it yet. People just don't want something, or they don't want to deal with something. I think until, you know, they that it's happening to them. But there's been people for years saying. Here's and this is something I gotta say because I think it's an important distinction. For years we knew that we were gonna have this population issue when the when these boomers kind of got older, but people weren't really thinking about well, what does this mean for the labor force? You know, I think I think it was really hard for people to imagine that we were we're gonna have at the same time that boomers were retiring, we were gonna also see this significant drop in labor force participation, particularly amongst millennials. So I don't think people understood that that was going to happen, and I also don't think you could have necessarily predicted it. However, there were things in the, uh, the article that we wrote last year, some research that I've been doing since 2015 about, you could kind of see that this was coming. Labor force participation had been falling for a couple of decades, and, you know, there's just a concern about, you know, what could be a huge inheritance effect 
you know, as boomers, you know, pass and, and leave money behind, uh, you know, I think there's some things we should have been able to see. But I think we also have a situation where I think people thought, well, you know, we've got more robots or we're, we won't need people as much. You know, I don't think people understood the, the incredible demand for labor that we have in this country. You know, I, I always say it like this, and I may have say that you see the video, you know, we're a service economy, but there's no one here to serve us. So, you know, we, we have created a world that just needs so many jobs, and we just don't have those people anymore. Hmm. Um, you, you have said that this labor shortage affects every region of the nation. Yeah. Now, I, I live in Georgia where 60% of the population of this state lives within 50 miles of the state capitol building in Atlanta. Does this labor shortage affect very large metro areas yeah, as it's well in this country? Mm-hmm. Yeah, it really is affecting everybody. Here's the kind of the crazy thing. So I live in Florida. Uh, I live in uh-huh. Jacksonville. And we're, the, we're the second fastest growing city in the country right now. And I'm telling you what, there's not a store down here that doesn't have a help wanted sign. And so what's happening is we have a lot of people moving to states like Florida uh, North Carolina, other states, and, but they're moving there more to retire. And it's the worst possible situation because people move to an area, they're not, and I don't mean, this is not meant to like attack them, but just to say they're not really, you know, contributing to that economy. They're more taking from it. So when your population grows, then you need goods and services. But if your labor force mm-hmm. doesn't grow at the same rate as your population, then there's, you're putting more strain on less people. And I think what you're seeing is unilaterally, almost every state, I haven't talked to anybody in a state yet. I haven't talked to anybody in an area. Obviously, rural areas have really been decimated, but I haven't talked to an area yet. They're like, oh, no, we're doing, we're doing fine. You know, this labor force participation plunge that we've seen has, has hit the country pretty unilaterally. Mm-hmm. Now, you, you, you spoke, of course, about, about uh, the pandemic uh, really accelerating that process yes. at obviously light speed. But after the economy started coming back, you also mentioned several million people uh, of working age who just chose not to return to yes. the labor force. What is driving that? Uh, what, what's yeah. driving that? Yeah, there's it, it's. So in the presentation, it really, it's a, it's a combination of several reasons. It's, about, it's, it's literally about six or seven reasons that kind of hit us at the same time. But I think there's an element that there was fear that was there. Um, undeniably, uh, we can still show this pretty clearly. I show it in the research. The, the CARES Act payments were significant. You know, I think we, we see it was about $4 trillion that we kind of put into the economy, but we put about, you know, a trillion to $2 trillion straight into people's pockets. And even as of January, so even as of literally two months ago, we had about 8 million people who were out of the labor force when they asked them, how are you meeting your needs? You know, how are you paying for these things you know, now that you are not working? And we had 8 million people say they were still using stimulus payments uh, to pay for their needs. And then you had 24% of these people, it's about 24 million people, saying that they were using credit cards. So mm-hmm. the good news is that credit card debt is starting to go right back up again, and we can see that the savings that people had from the stimulus checks do, does seem to be evening back out again. So, you know, it really does come down to the fact, I think a lot of people 
were able to leave the labor force and then they could financially, you know, survive to stay out. And really they've just been kind of riding everything out. And now I think you will start to see some of these people returning, you know, probably over the next couple months. But um, it's a little discouraging. We're in March and everywhere I go, all I hear from one employer after another is like they're literally in complete desperation right now. So I think, you know, I had made a prediction that I thought second quarter, and I feel like that's probably still fairly accurate. But you got to remember, we had an enormous amount of excess retirements. And I think that mm-hmm. was largely driven by fear. I think there was a lot of it that was just as well, just people who were all, when they look at who did retire, these were people who were 65 to 75 who were still kind of hanging around the labor force, and they just decided, I don't want to work anymore. You know, I'm done with mm-hmm. this thing, and the market had a good year, you know, in 2020, 2021, and they, you know, they bailed out. Mm-hmm. Now, you, you, you talked about uh, mistakes that, that companies have made leading yeah. up to this, and, and I, noticed, I noticed, you know, I, I worked for one company for many, many years, and one thing they never seemed to worry about very much was turnover. They, they did not tune in to employee retention in a way that I personally thought they should. Are companies, do they have to share the blame uh, for, for, lack of, for lack of labor? You know, it's interesting. I, I've, I've tried to make this point that, you know, a lot of people talk about the great resignation, which really isn't true. It's more like a great reallocation because no one really came in off the sidelines. A lot of people were just quitting and taking other jobs. And, I, and people were saying, hey, you know, this is just a sign that people are showing their discontent with their feet, you know. And I'm like, no, this is the first time in, in our history that we've had this many job openings. Like, people have always been kind of sick of the jobs. They have always been, you know, they had this complaint about a company or that complaint about a company. There's just nothing they could do about it. But now people can. So it's not like companies all of a sudden have done anything new. They're just doing what they've always done. And now people have so many options that they can exercise it. But, you know, what we're seeing here is this kind of, like I keep saying, it's this great reallocation. And I I always kind of laugh about it because the job that these people are entering into, the one they can't wait to get, is the one that the last person couldn't wait to get out of. So I think you have this kind of dynamic of the grass is greener. um, But I think ultimately, you know, have companies necessarily – um, are they misjudging the market only in the sense that I think there are certain companies out there who, you know, maybe haven't understood, you know, people have a lot of bargaining power, a lot of bargaining power. Mm-hmm. And, and, and a lot of people call it pandering. You know, I don't want to pander these people, but it's like, look, you got to do what you got to do to get your work done. And if that means you have to look at things a little differently than you did in the past, you have to do that. You know, and that's where the concept mm-hmm. of remote work, with flexible schedules, all of that comes from there. Mm-hmm. I have one more question um, that kind of strikes home with me, and then I'm going to send it over to Catherine. Uh, you mentioned what? living in Jacksonville, the largest city in Florida. I live That's not the largest. It's county. the second fastest growing. <laughs> yeah. Uh, it, it, um, I live in a county with under 25,000 people mm-hmm. and the lack of infrastructure and everything that goes with it. And I was just wondering – is this particular labor shortage problem accelerating the decline of rural America? Is it, it's a, you know, 
it's an interesting question because a lot of people were already kind of leaving rural America, uh, you know, for a long time. We've been seeing this kind of moving to the suburbs and everything. I, I think, I don't know if it's really accelerated. When I look at the way situations are going right now, a lot of jobs are going remote. And so you have some, mm-hmm. you know, people that are living in big cities that are kind of moving out into more rural areas, but they're not working in those rural areas. You know, they're just getting a house in those areas. So I think there's some of right. that going on right now. I, I think the other thing we have to understand is we have the worst housing shortage we've ever seen. So a lot of people who uh-huh. may want to move right now actually can't really move. So I, I can't, you can't really accelerate that problem when a lot of labor mobility just can't happen right now. Mm-hmm. Well, I appreciate that, sir. And at this time, I'm going to send it over to Catherine. Catherine? Hey, thank you for being on the show tonight. We really appreciate it. This is a great topic. Um, scary I have a lot topic. Of thoughts about it. <laughs> it's scary, but it's uh, like I'm I'm a, I'm a baby boomer too. I'm right at retirement age, but I'm still working, and mm-hmm. uh, I hope to continue to work for a little bit longer anyway. But I have a more um, sort of, uh, I guess, esoteric question or um, rhetorical question. I don't know what you, how you would frame, frame it. But, you know, I, I'm a baby boomer. I grew up with, you know, thinking that, you know, technology and uh, innovation would change our lives in a way that would allow us more freedom from work to pursue other um, interests and that technology would help us to have a more, uh, not leisurely life, but a a fuller life. But I'm still working as much as my mother and my father worked. And I just wonder if, if there's like a, if it's time for like a reframing of work is the 35 to 40 hour work week, really um, the, the, the answer to our problems or to our economy. <laughs> That's a big Boy, there's question. A lot to unpack. Right? <laughs> yeah, there's a lot to unpack there. So let's, let's talk about this. I'm going to talk about this in some different ways and it may sound like I'm contradicting myself, but let's first talk about the fact that, uh, technology in the way that we're using it really means you're probably working more. I mean, I always say with, when you own a cell phone, are you really ever off of work? So I think people are kind of more right. attached oh, to the world than they've ever been. So I think there's that part of it. Uh, and so I think the concept of a work week starting to fall apart when you talk about, uh, I would say, that kind of more white-collar work because I think people, you know, I'm getting emails today from people, and, I, you know, I think – that would never have happened, you know, way back when you didn't, you didn't, you detached when you walked away from work. And I think there's a, there's a first part of it. I think the second part of it is, yes, I mean, the, the construct of a, of a work week is really an, an industrial revolution invention. And there's so many things based on that. You look at it and you go, why are we still looking at things like this? And we've been telling companies who are having labor shortages, start to deconstruct your jobs, you know, start to tell people, look, if you can come in and give me a couple hours here, a couple hours there, if as long as it helps me meet the, the needs that I'm doing, you're, you're going to have to start to look at work like that. And then there's this kind of third component, which is we have an extraordinary labor shortage right now. So if you can get people, the problem that companies are having is you're going to end up working in the death. 
I mean, in the past, that would have never been an issue. You could have always gotten more labor, uh, even though we did push people to overtime. You know, we actually had a lot of labor at a time that we were using a lot of overtime. We could have just hired more people. And I actually wrote an article about that way back in the 90s of, you know, we're substituting overtime for people. Well, now we have the opposite problem. We have to do overtime because there aren't any people. So you can't really start to scale back a work week if you're a manufacturing plant or a warehouse because you need these people more than you ever have in the past because now you can't fill any of your openings. So, you know, there's just a lot of things in there that are, are these dynamics that are shaping up right now, and they're going to really take shape, you know, like the 2030 when the boomers are all retired, and then 2034 when we have more older people than children for the first time in our history. Yeah, I mean, I, I I get all that, and you know, it's it's hard to argue with with numbers and metrics, but it seems to me that um, that it's time to just look at like, um, mm-hmm. I mean, I think your point about uh, sm- smaller jobs and you know shorter work weeks and more people is a good one. I think maybe. Uh, and this is, you know, something we haven't even mentioned yet, but is part of all this equation, is if we could detach healthcare from employment, then it wouldn't be so hard maybe to get some people to work. Like I would be willing to work, you know, 15 hours a week, and uh, if I didn't have to work, full time in order to get benefits that I need. And I think there's other people that might be willing to do that too. Those people that have, you know, as you said, you know, especially during this pandemic who have pulled themselves out of the workforce, but if they could get a job that paid relatively well, but didn't require them to work a full 40 hour Mm -hmm. or whatever week. um, I just, I, I just feel like it's time for some innovative thought around these, things even though like you said you know I don't I don't have a headache now but I'm going to have one you know I'm going to have one in a week um because I I mean obviously we're just going to keep facing this problem as all of us baby boomers get older and and live longer because you know of all the um other innovation that we've had in healthcare and what all the things um so I just it just feels like we're um we're right. you know we have blinders on we're not looking at at what's going to happen we're just like pushing along in the same yeah. way that we always have and i just it feels like a mistake yeah there i mean there's so many things there as well kind of to your earlier point so you know when we look at this shortage of labor which you know it's it's inevitable at this point you know birth rates have been so low so i think we kind of have to, when we look forward, you start to, a lot of people keep asking me, like, you know, I, they kind of see the numbers and they, they keep going to me and I'm like, well, what's, what's going to happen? Like, where are we heading? And I'm like, well, where we're heading is we're a service-based economy, but a lot, obviously we're not going to be able to provide that level of service. And, I, and one of the jokes I make is I hope you like your in-laws and your parents because they're going to be living with you because we're not going to have that many people working in nursing homes. Like, you're going to be taking more responsibility into your home. I hope you, you know, hope you really don't love eating out because there's probably going to be a lot, a lot less restaurants in the future, you know, because there just simply won't be the people to, to work in those types of things. So 
you know, those kind of dynamics are kind of evolving and changing. As far as, um, you know, things like healthcare or any of those things, that's where it all gets tricky because when you look at, you know, millennials and such, a lot of them don't look for traditional packages and, and such. They're more of the, uh, I'm the, in the meaningful work. Like I want to do something that, that kind of matters and they're a little less concerned about, you know, IRAs or things like that. And I'm painting with a broad brush, and I do not mean to kind of indict all of them. Generation Z actually has been, like, they're the ones who are saying, like, we look, we're looking at IRAs and we're, we're looking at benefits packages and things. And I think that there's, we have this population right now that's trying to, you know, I, I make this kind of joke in it, that we're trying to go from a work-life balance to a life-work balance. And, and I think that at a time that we really need people really working is a time that we're kind of struggling to figure out how to get people, how, how to make it work for them. You know, I think that, that that's the big issue that we're facing. There's people out of the labor force because they can't get child care. And so you start to look at it and you go, well, what can you do? And I've talked about, well, why are people paying for child care? Why don't the companies in a market band together and just fund the child care centers? And that way they can bear those costs across all of the employers. Like, and, I mean, I put that up on LinkedIn. I got, like, 12,000 views on this thing. And I think a lot of people are like, hey, that's something new. And I'm like, look, I'm not saying it's the right thing. I'm just saying it's a thing. And why am I not hearing more creative, incredible things? Everywhere I go, people ask me, tell me the cool things that people are doing to combat this labor shortage. And I'm like, I would love to tell you that. But I'm still trying to convince people that the labor shortage isn't going to go away. <laughs> I mean, I think, I mean, as someone who works in a small organization that has been on a hiring um, spree over the last, like, 18 months, I, I wish we had some, some better solutions because we're not getting the kind of uh, quality or um, numbers of applicants that we got yeah. even – even an eight, 18 months or two years ago. So even during the pandemic, the, at the beginning of the pandemic, we were getting lots of applications, but now it's sort of petered out and we're, um, you know, we're having to make some tough decisions about who to hire. It is, um, it is incredible to watch. I, like I say, I, uh, when I wrote the article, I actually have another job. And then I wrote the article, and at first I was asked to speak a couple of times. I'm like, oh, that's nice. And then the press, more and more and more. And I uh, was in Time Magazine uh, this past week, and Wall Street Journal, and U.S. News and World Report. And then everybody starts bombarding me with it. And then I realize why. It's because everyone is in pain. And they're all trying to figure out, please tell me, like, like I'm a doctor. You're like, are you, are you, can you tell me that my pain's going to go away? And I'm like, no. I'm more like a cancer doctor who tells you why you're sick and why you don't feel well. And I, I tell people I'm not a workforce consultant. I'm more of the person who just tells you the bad news. But I will say in all of that, there is something. Like everybody always appreciates when I speak, and I always i am like, that's kind of weird because it's a horrible message. But they always say, well, at least now, just like with a disease, if you tell me what's wrong, then I know what my treatment options are. And I think that, you know, one of the things that I keep saying to companies is you have to start to look at the core of what work you do. And those things that you may have done or added over the years, you may want to start to pair those things back. You know, I said earlier, we're a very service-based economy. And, you know, that you brought up, I think you were bringing up 
earlier, we're talking about robotics and AI. And in the new paper, we talk about, you know, those advances in robotics and AI are going to generate millions of jobs. They don't destroy, they, they create jobs. And then the, the thing that I always go to, and it's in, the, it's in this new presentation I'm giving you, you know, we've been dealing with automated call center technology since the late 1970s. How many people, your listeners, how many of you all love calling an automated call center? I mean, right. at the end of the day, you, you want to, you're screaming at your phone and you want to throw it at the wall. Why? Because every experience we have is nuanced. You know, it's not exactly what fits a script, and you want to be heard. You want to be, you want to know that somebody heard your problem and they're going to fix that problem. And you're not, you don't get that with AI or robotics. So. This is a really pivotal time in, in, in our, not only our country, obviously, Japan, South Korea, Italy, Germany. I mean, birth rates are plunging, have been plunging everywhere. You know, we're going to have to start to figure out how we're going to navigate a world that just simply has less human touch to it in order to get work done. Well, on that note, I think I'll pass it back to David. <laughs> <laughs> Thank Probably you so much. I'm just filled with good news. I know. I know. <laughs> yes. Well, Ron, I, I just feel like we hadn't even. There's so many more things we could cover, not only on this, but there's going to be new emerging trends. But we know that you've got to get uh, to your sporting event later tonight, <laughs> and we got so lucky with that schedule. And so, if you would be so gracious, maybe in several months, and and the schedule works out, to maybe come join us yeah. again on the Coastal Vine. Absolutely, it's been a pleasure. Well, the last thing I will tell is if someone wants to read the demographic, demographic drought, they want to follow you on social media, they want to see more about Burning Glass, just share with our listeners all the ways they can find all this great information. Yeah, so the, the company address is economicmodeling, economicmodeling.com, economicmodeling.com, or you can just literally Google E-M-S-I-M-Z uh, or Burning Glass, and it'll take you to our website. You can also just Google demographic drought. If you do, you can go on YouTube. I believe the last count I had like 220,000 views on that video. It's me presenting the very first version of this. I actually am presenting a, a new version of it now. And you can watch that, uh, get all the details from there, hear my lovely voice and see my not-so-attractive face delivering this message. Um, or you'll by Googling demographic drought, it will take you to our website. You can download the paper. I can't even count how uh, the downloads on that have been insane. So um, I will just warn everybody, it's, it's, this is harsh stuff. I mean, it's harsh reading. It's hard stuff to hear, but I do think ultimately the goal in writing it was not to scare people as much as just to prepare people, you know, for the realities that we're starting to face. Yes, well, we thank you so much for sharing it with us. We always like the truth. We, we can handle the truth, good. unlike a few good men. Um, and so good luck tonight in your hockey game, and then hopefully we well, can get back with you later in 2022. All right. Sounds great. Thanks, everyone. Thank you so much. Thanks, sir. Thank you, sir. All right. Ron Hetrick of MZ Burning Glass. I mean, really fascinating stuff. Not only demographic drought, but if you, they have a lot of other shorter videos. Uh, they, they've got a really good setup. They um, have this little thing where they – I think they're all pledging a fraternity or sorority. They make them drink banana beer and weird stuff as they're telling these information about just our demographics and our job trends and whatnot. But um, just some fascinating – and I will say this, kind of apolitical um, content. I mean, it's not skewed left, skewed right. It's just information 
that really governmental leaders need to know whether they are Republicans or Democrats. You just find out the facts, and then you have to make some solutions um, from you know those kind of facts. So just really um, informative stuff. Well, let's kind of get back to our discussion we had before, and uh, we were talking about you know how does this play in Florida? And Catherine, I know you were kind of telling a little bit. Did you have anything to add before I pass it to Tim? No, uh, thanks. Okay. Uh, Tim, you, kind of your thoughts on Ron DeSantis and um, how and how Florida voters react to him, because that's the key step. If Florida voters reject this, yeah. then everything else he wants is put on hold. And and I have polling data for you. Here's a poll of polls uh, from Race to the White House, their, their website, and it shows DeSantis at 51.5 and Charlie Crist, his likely opponent, at 39.4. So it's playing very well for DeSantis in Florida and for Republicans in general. I want you to remember, DeSantis won that governor's race by four-tenths of a percent four years ago. It's the closest gubernatorial election in Florida history. And since that time, Charlie Cook says that Republican support or the state has moved four percent more Republican than it was then. So Democrats have got a problem uh, down there, and DeSantis is capitalizing on it, and he remains a firm favorite to win re-election, which, of course, he badly needs to do if he has national aspirations. And uh, that that's where it stands right now. I, I don't really have any good news uh, to to give Democratic folks about what's going on down there. We've talked about this before, you know, right, guys? Yeah, I will say this. I do think a lot of those polls were taken before a lot of this controversy happened. Now, I don't think this controversy is going to move voters 15%. Um, And so Mm -hmm. because what you said, I guess it was uh, about a 15-point spread. No, no, Uh, no, no. The latest polling was taken – the, the latest polling in this was taken just a couple of weeks ago, so most of the controversy was, is baked in. So close to the polls of polls, you can stretch out over several months, you know, unless you're mm-hmm. in that season where you're getting polls every day from three different firms. Um, so, but mm-hmm. once again, like I said, I don't think it's going to move 15 points. Now, it's, it's funny. We had Dante Cheney on a fair, several months ago, and he said something about Florida, and Ron Hetrick just said something that verified that. You know, Dante told us that Florida is pumping in so many new voters every day, and they're voters that are older, they're retired, they have, um, you know, means, that, you know, and they come down to particularly that middle part of Florida, um, and then – that skews the state rightward. You know, Ron Hetrick just told mm-hmm. us, you know, older voter, older people, retired people, because um, he wasn't. He was talking in labor terms, not political terms, that they're coming into Florida. Um, so mm-hmm. my question, Catherine, is how much of this is Florida's new voters are making their state move rightward, and how much of this is people are in Florida that are already there moving rightward, or – they were maybe scared of what a Ron DeSantis would do, and for some reason, they don't find this scary. Oh boy, that's a tough, a tough thing to evaluate. I'm, I don't 
follow Florida closely enough to really be able to make a judgment on that. It's probably a bit of all three. Yeah, Catherine, my take on it is is people live in Florida lifelong, and they don't have a clue what it is. There are political Uh, operatives that have worked in Florida for decades that don't seem to understand how to get a hold of that thing, at least on the Democratic side. Because um, it, it is it, really just it's it, moving away from us but, for some but, reason. But, but, it, it, yeah, well, it's um, not. It's I, not I just those older voters. Firm answer, yeah, Tim. It, I can I can give a piece of an answer. I guess it's not just older voters. Two hundred thousand more has voted for Donald Trump in 2020 than they did in 2016. Florida Hispanics are moving to the Republican Party, especially in South Florida especially Hispanic men. And uh, we were planning on those Hispanic voters coming to us in bigger numbers, and and they're not. They're going the other way. The uh, Hispanic voters in Florida and in Texas are moving away from us, and we are not going to win Florida if we lose those voters. We've got to have those voters. We don't expect to get the older voters, the re- the retirees. That That is a rock rib Republican down there right now, but we expect to get those Hispanics. If we don't get them, I, do you see a way we can win that state? I, I don't know, and obviously – you know, Florida's a much more complicated state with their Latino voters because it is people from um, Cuba, people from Venezuela, people from Mexico, people from Puerto Rico, and they're all very different. And it's not like you can talk to one set of voters the same way as another set. It's really – you don't need just one person that has the magic answer. You need like a team of folks that can answer just those little things. But I will say this. Now, there may be those older retired voters that, yeah, you're not going to get them to switch over. But I do think uh, a lot of times Democrats fall in this trap is they're like, okay, we can't win any white – you know, that we can't hardly win any white voters, and therefore we've got to get every non-white voter. But then if you start losing non-white voters, you're like, what do I do? What do I do? Well, you say at some point – if a, if a racial group is making up 60% of a state, a country, whatever, you can't just bleed off the whole group. You've got to make mm-hmm. some inroads with the majority group. And so I think that is one thing. Maybe it's younger voters. Maybe it's millennials. You know, we had John Delavoe. Well, David, um, I'm not saying no, we jettisoned those voters. I, those I, I wasn't saying I wasn't saying we jettisoned those voters and get rid of them. I'm saying we're losing our base voters. We we can't yeah, worry I, about picking up voters if we're losing our base. But I think I think as time goes on, you're going to have voters, Latino voters, that may see that they are more Republican than Democratic, and if that's the case and we we can't find the right magic answer of issues because they are just more conservative, then maybe there's other voters. And I think we saw that in some places in this last presidential election. Joe Biden made the greatest gains with white voters because Trump actually did better with most voters of color than he did in 2016. Joe Biden did better than Hillary Clinton with white voters. So I think you have to you know, figure out a mix of things. And in Florida is the perfect place because it is such a, a just a melting pot of everyone. 
um, down there. And so it's, um, you know, just have to look at all the different ways and maybe find one answer in Hillsborough County and another in Duval and another in Miami-Dade um, and, and just kind of localize at times how to put it all together because it is a very unique and different state, really unlike any other in the country. Well, guys, we got about five minutes, um, and Georgia had their redistricting. I personally didn't find a too many surprises. Um, I think there were more big surprises at the state yeah. house and state senate level than even at the statewide level. Um, but there were a few here and there. Um, people decided not to run and whatnot. Catherine, what were some of your David, takeaways me, from Georgia redistricting? Georgia filing, candidate filing. Qualifying. Right? That's what we were talking qualifying. about, not redistricting. Yes. Yeah, I think yes. I said redistricting. Okay. I meant qualifying. <laughs> candidate filing. You had me yep. confused there. Um, well, I think, the, I think we have a whole, you know, boatload of people running for lieutenant governor, apparently, uh, on the Democratic side. Um you know, last-minute surprises. David Dreyer deciding not to run again was kind of a surprise there at the last minute. Um, people drew some some uh, primary opponents. Congresswoman Nakima Williams has a couple Democratic primary opponents, which is kind of crazy. And uh, I think Hank Johnson has a primary opponent. So, you know, a few surprises. Uh, Nan Orock drew two primary um, opponents uh, in the Democratic primary. So I think, you know, as usual, there's a handful of people who think they can roll out of bed and decide to run for office, having either never run before or only ever run before and lost. So, uh you know, it should be interesting to watch how all these things develop. Yes. Tim, some of your takeaways. You know, this, uh, I, I want to quote you this stuff about the state Senate. Now, there's 56 state senators. In 11 races in which there's a GOP incumbent, there is no opposition, no opponent. Same is true of six Democratic state senators. No opposition, no opponent. In six other GOP-held seats, there is Republican-only opposition, no Democrats. And in seven Democratic-held seats, there is Democratic opponents and no Republican opposition. That means in 30 of the 56 state Senate races, there will be no general election opponent over half. That, that's, that's a pretty incredible statistic to me. Uh, that, that, that one just jumped right out at me. Another thing that jumped right out at me in statewide races, there's a libertarian running for lieutenant governor. There is a libertarian candidate in the uh, agriculture commissioner's race, and there's no other libertarians uh, in the constitutional races anywhere, although there's some Republican-leaning libertarian candidates that I guess they'll vote for. I would have thought that by now, after all this time, the Libertarian Party would field a full slate 
they're going in the opposite direction. And and uh, I was wondering uh, maybe uh, y'all's take on what's happened to the Libertarian Party. Yeah, that 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 could almost be a whole show in itself. Um, the Libertarian mm-hmm. Party, you know, they are for smaller government, not only on revenue side, but also on personal freedoms, or the Republican Party is moving away from, um, you know, there have there are more restrictions on personal freedoms than they ever were before, so you think the Libertarian Party would still be very, very robust, but to me, that's a telling sign that that party's really just all about lower taxes and less government spending, and they just pay lip service in many cases to personal freedoms, and, and they're really not about that. In any big way, um, Catherine. Before I give my takeaways, did you have any thoughts on the Libertarian Party of Georgia? Yeah, I think David's right, and and I also think mm-hmm. that they are probably struggling a little bit to keep uh, their people all together, just you know, for a variety of reasons: the pandemic mm-hmm. and the rise of the Trump voter, and. Um, just you know, a, a lot of other distractions that, um, and and I imagine they probably are having trouble raising money, just because, partly because of the pandemic. Yeah, and they really should be having a moment because the Democratic Party is moving further left as far as you know big government spending. The Republican Party is moving much farther right on big government personal freedom intrusion, so they really have no place to go if they don't have a strong party of their own, and they're just you know, missing a moment, or maybe people just don't care about that movement anymore. Hard to say. Mm. Um, well, my, my mm. takeaways, I did find it interesting that Mark Butler is not running for labor commissioner. That's creating an open seat. I, I don't think he would have had much problem winning the Republican primary, and then – you know, then it becomes on the wave. Is it going to be further left or further right? But he would have had incumbency um, at his back, so I guess he's just tired of that job. Um, Jeff Mullis, state senator up your way, Tim, he um, announced he's not mm-hmm. running for re-election. That was a bit of a surprise. And I think a little bit before uh, candidate uh, qualifying, Everton Blair uh, on the school board of Gwinnett County, he decided not to run for state school superintendent. And people thought a big-name candidate would jump in. Well, Alicia Morgan Thomas, and I think she does have another name now. I don't have it in front of me. Um, and if one of y'all know it, tell me. But she's running. But I really don't know. Like 20 years ago, 15 years ago, I think she would have been a big name. Since she's been out of the state legislature a while, I'm not so sure she's that big name people are expecting. So that race doesn't really have that high-profile educator Running as a Democrat, it's had in the past. It's had a lot of policy people now that have served on school boards and school choice movements and things like that. And I kind of think that's a bit of a disappointment in addition to being a surprise. Yeah, we, 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 we can't go without mentioning our good friend Wendy Davis, who qualified uh, to run for Congress up here. So we want everybody to be aware that she is now officially – a candidate. Yay. Tim, I want to go ahead and say, we said surprises. We knew that a quality public servant, longtime Rome City Commissioner, running yeah, to go but, to Congress and serve the people of Northwest Georgia, that's not a surprise. Right. That's chalk. 
We expected that. It, 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 <laughs> but it, but it's welcome news for friends of the kudzu vine, and if the kudzu vine ever has a good is. friend, it is Wendy Davis. <laughs> yes, it certainly is. Well, um, next week we're going to have a great show for you. We're going to talk Texas politics. They just had their primaries. I think they're going to have a few runoffs coming up. And Sonia Van Meter, she's already said, yes, I'll come on in. And I believe her husband, Jason Stafford, who was on a few weeks ago or maybe months talking about his book, uh, Forget the Alamo, I think they're both going to come in as a wife-husband team about uh, Republican oh, politics ooh. next week. So until then, All right. in the cozy vine. Good night, Good night, guys. y'all. Good night, everybody. We are the heirs of that first revolution. with a strong and united... With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.